todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. My guest this week is Ron Keel, whom you may know best as the frontman of Keel, the hard rock band that formed in the 1980s and had hits with anthems like The Right to Rock, which was produced by Gene Simmons, and Speed Demon, which later gained a whole new audience through its inclusion in the Men in Black 2 movie. Since then, Ron has fronted several bands and even made his mark on country music, which he outlines in his memoir, Even Keel. The book isn't new, but it is evergreen, so we're going to talk about that and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thank you so much for having me, Stacy. and I am living proof that your rock and roll nightmares can come true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I did read your book, and we are going to get into that. Um, but oh my goodness, all... the first first girl besides my wife that's ever read my book and is still talking to me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's an endorsement right there. Um, but, you know, first of all, I do want to get into your latest accomplishments because there's so much. Um, Keel Fest, I know, it just happened. Now, was that the second annual show? It was the second Keel Fest. We did it first okay. in Columbus, Ohio in 2019. And I had planned at that time to make it an annual event. But of course, 2020 had other plans with the pandemic. And we had to put that on hold. And the opportunity to not only do the show with Keel, Steeler, Ron Keel Band, our new RFK Media Artists, The Fifth and Crashing Wayward, uh, not only to sing and perform, but for my company, RFK Media, to host and sponsor and promote the after party for the 2023 Rock and Pod Expo, was uh, it was a huge undertaking uh, on the back end from an admin standpoint, and uh, a great challenge. You know, I I, I felt uh, about 2017. I think I had the idea that it would be really cool to get all my friends under one roof and celebrate all the memories, the music the friendships, uh, because I still am really close friends with most everybody that I've played with and worked with. And it was that uh, initial one night I'm, I'm working on artwork uh, for the the website, and I just put together the Keel logo, 
the Ron Keel band logo and the Steeler logo on one graphic. And I thought, how cool would that be? That would be one hell of a show. And it was in 2019. It was a, a great show and a great event. We're really happy that we could do that again in Nashville, where it all started for me over 40 years ago for Keel Fest 2 in March. My biggest regret, I think, was the fact that there's so many moving parts and so many good friends. I mean, I had 21 musicians, my crew, uh, family, friends, and fans from all over the world. And I could not give anyone really more than you know five seconds of my time, a quick smile, a handshake, a hug, and you move on because I'm getting pulled in a thousand different directions. So I regret that not being able to, to at least sit and, and speak. And if, I saw Mark Ferrari, my brother, you know, for 40 years now from Kiel. I saw him in the car on the way to rehearsal. And that was, you know, we could get to rehearsal. And we start grinding out the tunes and we're just working. So we didn't really have a whole lot of time to, to spend with each other. But uh, I enjoy the accomplishment. It really is, uh, it was a challenge. I think that it's human nature at least it is for me. And it, it it's primordial. It's embedded in our genetic code to see a mountain and you want to climb it. I'm not the kind of guy who stands on the beach and soaks it all in. I'm the kind of guy who stands on the beach and wants to sail across it and see what's on the other side. So uh, Kiel Fest was a challenge for me. And I hope that those were there that were there enjoyed it. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure we'll do it again. Uh, I've learned to never say never in this business, but it was uh, it was a big job. It is a massive undertaking, and you mentioned um, Crashing Wayward. I know Stacy Blades. I just met him, though. I don't know him very well, but I saw Crashing Wayward in Las Vegas here at Counts Vamped, and I was so impressed. So you really are discovering and spotlighting a lot of great new music, too, with Keel Fest. That band, Crashing Wayward, and the other band we've signed to the label who also appeared at Keel Fest, The Fifth, featuring Roy Cathy, uh, Crashing Wayward is a, a force to be reckoned with, and we're really lucky to have them on the roster. Stacy is an old friend of mine, Stacy David Blades, who also worked with LA Guns for a long time. Sean McKee, the drummer, has been one of my best friends for over 15 years now. So they started sending me their music, and I would promote it and put it on my radio show. And anything I could do for my my buddies, you know, I'm going to do it. Right. And they sent me the third single the third track that they'd mixed called Stranger Days. And I was blown away. Literally the song wrecked my day. Um, I'm producing my radio show and, and I'm under the gun to hit the deadline. And I just couldn't stop listening to it over and over again. And I realized that there was really something special there. I reached out to them and I said, I don't deserve you. I can't afford you, but I really want you. You should sign with my label. And my goodness, they did. And here we go. The, the first album is coming out uh, in June. And the, the new single will come out next month in May. That's uh, a force to be reckoned with and a band that uh, we're all going to be watching and enjoying for many years to come. Absolutely. I could I could really feel that at the show. They were really tight, um, but they had like a kind of a, I don't know, almost like a big stadium sound in, you know, even in the small club. Absolutely. That band is stadium ready and they're all rock stars, especially the front man, Peter Summit. Uh, I, put him on a level with uh, the all-time greats. I mean, I hate to to make those comparisons at such an early stage of the game, but Freddie Mercury and uh, Dave Grohl, and he's, he's a rock star, uh, an impressive performer, both on stage and in real life. I want to get back to your book, which we 
mentioned at the top of the show, I do read a lot of memoirs. I just love to learn about people and kind of what makes them tick, makes them who they are. Um, musicians are my favorite ones, though. So I'm glad that I I finally discovered yours. I didn't know about it until recently, but um, there's a lot of different ways to approach one's autobiography. So what was your process and why did you decide to release a memoir in the first place? Well, at the core of it all, you know, whether it's on stage, in my songs, on my radio show, or sitting around a campfire, or sitting at the bar with my buddies, I am first and foremost, I think, a storyteller. And I love to, uh, especially doing a lot of interviews like this one, people are going to ask you questions and you got to tell an interesting story to keep my audience and your audience engaged. So I've always been uh, fond of recounting those moments in my life that really had an impact on me. And of course, everybody will tell you along the way, hey, you should write a book. And uh, that became a, a goal of mine to create a a memoir or a, a life story autobiography, so to speak. It took 10 years of doing it. And what I did, my process was just taking it one story at a time, totally out of chronological context. And a lot of it was written on an airplane ride or on the road. Uh, I would start with one story. I think I started with the French fry story, which is a very inconsequential story in the scheme of things in the book, but it really uh, had an impact on me, the French fry story. Uh, <laughs> and I started writing the stories. And I just would tell all the stories that everybody was always asking about or the ones that I would always tell around the campfire or at the bar or whatever. And I wrote all the stories. And then I went back and put them all in chronological order and kind of filled into the blanks with some of the uh, the stories about the journey along the way. My goal, first and foremost, was not to have a trashy tell-all. Nobody gets thrown under the bus in my book but me. As, as badly as I wanted to talk shit about my ex-wives or Ingvay <laughs> Momstein, I, I threw myself under the bus pretty hard and heavy. I come clean with all of my infidelities and drug use and everything like that. I mean, I, I, I cop to it all without having to bitch about the people that uh, I had a I had a, a beef with. Now in the revised version that we are publishing through RFK Media, it's been you know almost 10 years since the yeah. book was published. So it's time for uh, the revised edition with added content, adding a lot of stuff that's happened in my life the last 10 years because it has been one hell of a ride this past decade. And also maybe digging deeper into some of those stories that people want to know more about. I want to stay positive. And talk about the journey, about the music, because that really has always been my primary motivation. It's all about the music. And that's what took me on that journey in the first place. You mentioned like some memoirs are kind of overly bitter and other ones are too much fluff. So you've got to find that kind of balance to be truthful and yet not overly negative, right? Yeah, I just told the story I would want to read. Just like when I'm writing a song, I'll write a song that uh, that I'd want to listen to, or when I'm doing a show, uh, I'll put on a show that I would like to uh, that I would pay to see. I mean, I, I you can't please everybody. I try and please myself first and foremost because I realize keeping it all in perspective. If I've sold three million records, that means billions of people don't like me or don't want to hear what I'm doing. <laughs> That's so, one way know, to look at it. Perspective. It, it. It really does keep it all in perspective because selling three million means billions of people don't. Don't give a damn. Uh, and I'm cool with that. When you were going back over your 
life story? Did you have, did you keep journals or a day runner or how did you remember all those things? Did you have friends to help you when you interviewed them or how did that go? Did not keep a journal. I, uh, I had some, I have a lot of scrapbooks from back in the day. I do uh, have a lot of the, those dates that are engraved on your memory that you'll never forget, but I had to to really go back and relive my childhood. A lot about the first third of the book, as you know, since you've read it, is about my upbringing, my childhood. Those are to me the real interesting stories. Everybody wants to hear the Hollywood dirt and what was it like to be a rock star in L.A. in the '80s and all that. And we do get to that in the book, but some of those stories that uh, really have nothing to do with fame, fortune, and the Sunset Strip were the ones that really made me who I am. The being impaled on the spiked fence and having that, you can probably see the scar since we're on zoom. Oh, yeah. Your audience can't see it, but there's a big scar in my throat right here. When I was impaled on a spike, uh, when I was eight years old and the doctor said, I may never talk again. And I think I've, I've come a long way towards proving them wrong. Uh, <laughs> you know, my true. father, my father, who was a huge influence on me and growing up, literally leaving home as a teenager, living on the streets and paying my dues and and that journey, that struggle. To me, that's that's the fascinating stuff. Meeting Gene Simmons was a good story. I mean, there are some great stories in the book about the 80s and about the rock and roll lifestyle and about seeing my dreams come true. My first time in Japan and Europe and uh, touring with my heroes like Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, Van Halen, Aerosmith, and the list goes on. But I think the stories about the real me to me, are the, the ones that are the most interesting. Yeah, I mean, that one story that you told, I mean, was heartbreaking to me that when all of your guitars were stolen out of your car, I mean, that must have just been a massive blow that a lot of people would have maybe given up and said, well, that's a sign, you know, I don't, maybe I'm not meant to do this, but you kept on and you persisted. No, if I'd paid attention to the signs, I would have <laughs> never, I would have never gotten to that point in the first place because all signs... I mean, it, let's face it, this business is really difficult, if not impossible, to really have some measure of success in. And I was not very good. Honestly, uh, I think I, I bring that point home in my book. I, I was not some God-given prodigy or you know this huge talent. I had a lot of training from my music teachers in school, and I had this drive, this creative urge, this desire to be heard. And... Uh, I think that really fueled the fire that that kept me going through the tough years and paying my dues and living on the streets, literally sleeping behind a dumpster. And it's a hard luck story, and but it does have a happy ending. Right. Well, they do say that um, success is perspiration and inspiration and a little bit of talent because you really do have to persist, which you have. And um, one thing that I did want to uh, talk about going back to the the 80s, the glory days of hard rock and glam metal. But Kiel did come to pass in the age of the satanic panic as well in the PMRC censorship <laughs> times. And I remember the songs like The Right to Rock and then Twisted Sisters, I Want to Rock and Quiet Riots, Come On, Feel the Noise, kind of becoming the unofficial anti-censorship songs. Um, so can you give our listeners an overview of that time and what was it like to be a rock musician then? Well, the 80s were a magical time for all of us. We had a lot of dreams come true. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not one of those guys that wants to look back and I miss the old days because it was a struggle. It was uh, I was still learning how to be me. 
still learning how to be human, how to be a good songwriter and a good front man and a good singer. I was still very much in the school of hard knocks. But in 85, when our album, The Right to Rock, came out, produced by Gene Simmons, that was January of 85. I believe the PMRC and Tipper Gore and her satanic panic, as you call it, great term, by the way, that happened in late summer of 85. And we all thought, thank God, this is a, a blessing for all of us. Because if you put a warning label on something, you can't tell the kids what not to listen to because they're going right. to want to hear it. And rock and roll is all about rebellion anyway. I mean, Elvis and Chuck Berry, and they all went through that stuff long before I came along. Uh, records were being burned and banned. And uh, the more you tell somebody they can't have something, the more they want it. So when Tipper Gore and her PMRC went on their uh, crusade to censor rock music. Gene Simmons and I got together and said, this is a blessing. Let's capitalize on it. Gene Simmons and I did a promotional tour together, which ended up selling us a ton more albums in the late summer and early fall of 85. Uh, we gravitated to the right to rock as a rallying cry against that censorship and it really, it, it paid off for us. Yeah, it was a marketing ploy at the time. Obviously, hey, we can capitalize on this. Let's do it. Let's let's re-release the single and uh, do a promotional tour. Obviously, it hasn't done any good because still producing my radio show every week, one of the hardest things that I have to do is go through the playlist and edit out all the uh, profanity. <laughs> it's a time-consuming oh, well, task. Yeah. Uh, not all the f what, five minutes? <laughs> really uh well you just you put a bleep in there you turn it backwards or uh you, you mask that uh, profanity it's because we have fm and am stations airing my show and uh, yeah. that's a fcc fine we've come a long way and i think the barriers have been broken uh they can't stop us now they couldn't stop us then and it was an interesting time to uh for us to all band together for the same cause i mean the right to rock is more than just a song it's uh, an anthem about freedom of expression, the right to say what I feel, the right to do what I want. And I find it ironic that so many people have criticized me and just jumped, just pounced on me. I've become a polarizing figure in the fact that I was the first guy to sing country music. After the 80s were done, I started, it was uh, not really a conscious effort, but in 1990, 91, when it was over, no more record deal. Uh, you got a mortgage you can't pay. You got a wife and kids you can't support. Then there's no more record deal. There's no more touring. You know, what are you going to do now? And I was left with basically my guitar. I, I went to the desert and I started writing songs around a campfire with a bottle of whiskey and a, and a campfire. And I started writing songs about real life, love and heartbreak and things that I was feeling, things I was going through, real stories. And it sounded like country music. I mean, every rose has its thorn, right? I mean, come on, that's <laughs> yeah. a country song if I ever heard one. But I was the first guy to really embrace that art form, uh, the first metal rocker to embrace country music and immerse myself in that art form. And I did a special for VH1, uh, one of those Where Are They Now specials. And it was the highest rated VH1 Where Are They Now in their history, narrated by Dee Snider. And they're all pouncing on me about, Really? Kill one country. Like I'm a traitor <laughs> to the cause. I was just exploring a new art form. I was trying to save my life, trying not trying to make a living because I didn't realize you could make a living playing country music. I was just trying to be creative. I had to sing, write songs and entertain people. 
Well, it turns out that uh, you you could make a living doing that in the 90s when Garth Brooks was on top of the charts and and a rising tide lifts all ships. So I was able to have that success in country music in the 90s and became uh, really the poster boy for that. And and I am still vilified and hated by many Hmm. because I did that. A lot of the metal fans, quote, metal fans that quit buying our records anyway, by the way, they they think I'm a traitor to the cause where, you know, in my opinion, there's no I don't I don't believe in prejudice in music or anything else in life. Uh, I grew up in a time when there was Ozzy and the Eagles on rock radio. And to, yeah. to us, it was all rock and roll. I mean, Black Sabbath and the Eagles on the same radio station. I played classical music. I won awards in school for playing classical music and the blues. For me, music is a menu and I want to taste everything on it. You know, even hip hop to a certain extent has, it's not my cultural thing, but, you know, I recognize uh, its place in uh, our culture and our history. Uh, For the metal fans that uh, continue to pounce on me on a daily basis and say, Ronnie Lee Keel, well, that's my name. So forgive me if I get passionate about this subject, but the right to rock, getting back to your question from five minutes ago, the right to rock (laughs) is all about freedom of expression, the right to say what I feel, the right to do what I want to do, as long as it's not hurting anyone else or infringing upon anyone else's rights. That's what the right to rock is really all about. It's not about the right to bang my head and smash my teeth out in a mosh pit. It's about the right to celebrate life, love, freedom, and music. I do like, Southern rock, like uh, the Almond Brothers or 38 Special and Outlaw Country, uh, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, even Chris Christopherson, I think is considered country or at least crossover. Um, But yeah, even I bought a Garth Brooks album, (laughs) you know, and so in the 90s, it was either grunge or country. They were both the biggest kind of musical art forms. And to me, from reading your book and getting to know you a little bit better, you're a musician. You know, it's not about genre. You're not really tethered to the genre. I I realized that the need to put labels on products and we are product. I mean, I I view Ron Keel, the product as being different than Ron Keel, the human being, but I am a product. You've got to put a label on it. You got to call it something. And I had this dilemma last year when we released a our last single, When This Is Over. And this is a very special song for me. It was uh, the, the inspiration came from a combination of factors, including the pandemic. And when this is over, we're all going to go back in time and live live our lives the way we, we had hoped we, we could. And the song itself, when you have to uh, put it in a category, I still don't know what kind of music that is. Is it country? Not exactly. Is it it's not metal, but there's metal guitars and big pounding thunderous drums. Is it Southern rock? I'm not sure. You know, I just don't know what kind of music that song is, but it's a great song. And uh, it's one that uh, will be a cornerstone of my career for the rest of my life. So I'm really proud of that. I'm going to pause for just a second here so that you can hear the song that Ron is talking about when this is over. Oh, that 
that certain day But everything changed And we had to grow up fast And face the truth And give up on all those crazy dreams Of destiny and world peace And surrender the innocence of our youth After all we've been through What have we become? We all want the same things When it's said and done When this is over
And now back to the show. I do enjoy uh, the fact that I've been able to live on both sides of the fence in metal and in country and carve a, a comfort zone in the middle somewhere. It's, it's, it's metal cowboy. It's where the metal cowboy is comfortable and I feel at home. And there are always going to be those same primary elements in my music, empowerment, a positive message and singing songs now, especially at this stage of my life that, that, that means something to me and hopefully resonate with people that are listening as well. Speaking of meaningful songs and meaningful lyrics and giving people inspiration, just kind of circling back to that satanic panic era when um, Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne's music allegedly caused young men to kill themselves and there were lawsuits and everything. But Keel was the opposite. And I'd love to uh, hear that story from your book about how that came about. Another one of my favorite stories. And as I mentioned, when I was writing the book, I had to tell these stories that really had an impact on me and, and share them with um, the reader and the audience. When The Right to Rock came out, um, it was all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the mid-80s. It was uh, very, you know, there's, especially with Gene Simmons producing your albums, Gene from Kiss, producing the records, there was a kind of a, a mandate that, 90% of the record had to have a, you know, some kind of sexual innuendo or uh, references. And the right to rock was a song about, and that's why the song is timeless. Now, still 40 years later, it's still got relevance and it still has a meaning and a place in rock history, but it's a song about being positive and fighting for what you want, fighting for what you believe in. And I was so touched by a fan letter. And back then we didn't have the internet. You got, boxes literally everyday boxes of fan mail from your PR firm or from the record company or from your management and, and I had to read every one of them and I still have these boxes of uh, fan letters that were written and stamped and people would write it out in, in handwriting and put a stamp on it and send it to us and eventually it would trickle down into my hands and this young man had written me a letter he'd also sent the letter to Hit Parader magazine and Hit Parader published his letter in their letters to the editor column right around the same time that I received it, you know, probably a few weeks after this incident happened. But uh, I'll paraphrase as best I can. He was going through a tough time, teenage kid, probably 17 years old. His girlfriend was pregnant. He'd lost his job. His parents had kicked him out of the house. Uh, he was just going through a really bad time. He felt like he should uh, end it all. And he wrote in the letter about how he took a gun and a boombox out into a field. And he was going to shoot himself in that field. He wanted to go out listening to music. And I guess he put on the Right to Rock cassette tape in his boombox. And he heard that song and he said, man, that song gave me the strength to put that gun down, to walk back to my house put my life back together, get a new job. You know, it gave him the strength to not pull that trigger, man. It's pretty I'm getting emotional just talking about it. When your music, when your music can stop a bullet, man, that's powerful stuff. That's powerful stuff. And could I'll always be forever grateful for that. That to me is the true meaning of success. You can't put a platinum 
award on that. And there's been a number of instances like that in my life that where I really felt that I did something special, that uh, I made a difference. And there's no greater reward as a, a human being, not just necessarily a songwriter or a performer or creator, but as a human being to really make a difference and change someone's life like that, to stop a bullet. Uh, when I was 16 years old, another quick story. This was a, a pivotal moment that's also in the book. My band, uh, I was just learning how to play. And you know, I wasn't even the lead singer in this band. And we got an offer to play at a Halloween dance at a mentally handicapped children's home in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, you, you can't say retarded anymore. I guess that's politically incorrect. But at the time, it was Arizona. Term, but yes, it's it was <laughs> it was Arizona retarded children's home. It was called Arch. That was the name of the place. Then it was not politically incorrect. That's what the place was called, Arizona retarded children's home. And we got an offer to play the Halloween dance and. Nobody else wanted the gig. It didn't pay anything. And I said, yeah, we'll do it. And we did it. And we were terrible. We were out of tune. We were sloppy. And there's 2,000 mentally handicapped people in the audience, all dressed up like Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Dracula and witches and ghosts and goblins. I mean, you can imagine the scene of these people just dancing in front of us. And they loved us. They absolutely were floored. And after the gig, I come off stage and they surrounded me and they're stroking my arm and they're crying and telling us how much they loved us. And thank you so much for playing for us. It means so much that that you guys came here and played music for us. Everybody else turns turns away and pretends that we don't exist. And you guys came and played. And it's just, just an emotional moment. I go right then and there. And I knew it right then and there when I was 16. I said, it's never going to get any better than this. I made it tonight. 2,000 people loved me and you can put you can add zeros to that but do those people really love you like those people love me i don't know man but i'll carry that memory to the grave with me yeah well now was there any music um in particular that really inspired you as a kid um anything that really kind of turned your life or your mind around everything everything uh you know of course the beatles on the ed sullivan show in 1964 was my initial uh you know i was injected with the 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 virus at that point i was infected with rock and roll when i saw the beatles on ed sullivan and as i grew up i just wanted to play i wanted to beat on drums i wanted to sing i wanted to bang on guitars and i was very lucky to be in the school band from the fifth grade on and I embraced the classical music. You know, I was fascinated, still am fascinated by the composers, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, uh, the fact that they could write something down on a piece of paper and 500 years later, I could play it. You know, I, they didn't have MP3s back then, man, but you could read that sheet, of, that sheet music and you could tell exactly what they felt and what they were thinking. As I got, got older and, and I was in the jazz band and the classical, the blues, uh, rock and roll was always a part of my life. And as I became a teenager, like many people of my generation, you gravitate towards whatever's louder, more exciting, more rebellious, more electric. And I certainly got into the, the theatrical aspect of bands like Kiss, uh, Alice Cooper. Uh, the Eagles and Skinner both were a huge influence on me as well. I mean, one of the first songbooks I bought when I started playing guitar was The Eagles' Greatest Hits. And still, uh, you know, to this day, one of my favorite bands of all time. So 
those are the bands that really shaped who I am and and what I do. Of course, ACDC was uh, really cool because I could play that stuff. I could, that was simple enough for guys like me. We could actually play that. Um, and then uh, Judas Priest. Absolutely. When I heard Stained Class in 79, I think it was, the record came out in 78. I probably heard it a year later. And that uh, that was the first real introduction to metal, along with Black Sabbath. Uh, and I'm still influenced heavily by everything that I hear and do. Part of my practice regimen every day is learning songs, not just playing my songs or uh, going through my show, but part of my day every day is spending some time uh, with Shazam, the little app that I have on my phone. As you're cruising down the highway and you hear a song you like, you hit the Shazam button and it stores your Shazam list. And I'll go back through that list and I'll learn those songs. It's the songs that I'm hearing on the radio. Most of it's country music uh, at this point. Um, and even Crashing Wayward, Stranger Days, which is the song that I told you wrecked my day. Uh, I felt one day I just got to learn the song. And I sat down and I played it and I learned it. So I'm still a fan. I'm still a kid being influenced by everything that I hear. So you're living music inside and out every day. Um, but I want to talk about recording music um, because you, you know, in reading your book again, I learned that you recorded at so many iconic studios, which I feel like have sort of absorbed the the music of the day. I feel like there must be a lot of atmosphere in those places like Sound City and the Record Plant, Electric Lady. Um, but I'm wondering now, do you think with the advent of uh, with the advent of home recording equipment and kind of the ease of self-releasing music that, I mean, it's a good thing, but it's kind of a double-edged sword. We're kind of also losing our sacred grounds where people gather to make music together. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I sure hope we're not losing that sacred ground. I still uh, am a firm believer in uh, leaving the heavy lifting to the experts. We recorded at uh, Omni Sound in Nashville a couple of weeks ago, the day after Keelfest, a uh, place where a lot of number one hits and platinum records have been recorded. And, you know, you're right. It's a double-edged sword because there is no substitute for walking into a place like Electric Lady in New York City where Jimi Hendrix built a studio. That mixing console where we recorded the Final Frontier album in 86 that's the same gear that they mixed Stairway to Heaven on. Wow. Uh, you feel that energy, that vibe, that presence, that rock and roll history. Uh, Sound City. I could tell uh, numerous stories about that building. I lived there for several years and recorded a lot of great stuff in Sound City. And Tom Petty, uh, Elton John has a custom made piano in that room. I don't know if it's still there. It was there last time I was where he had extended the you take the top off the piano and they put a plexiglass shield around the top curved edge of the piano. And they put the mics on top of that. Tom Petty had a plexiglass booth built for him in the middle of the room where he could perform live with his band and still be somewhat isolated with his microphone. Um, the stories that, that come with those legendary studios, you know, you're, you're, you are walking and singing on sacred ground. You feel that pressure. You feel the spirits of music that have been there before. And you also feel the pressure of the record company. You know, they're paying a couple of grand a day for you to be there when you're recording at home. You don't have that pressure. You don't have that clock ticking. So now we do it both ways. Uh, my process now is to record the drums 
in a real studio where there's you know there's ambience and you can get the the sound of the room and the the drums bouncing off the walls uh we we don't do that at home we do that in a real studio and a lot of times i'll go in the studio and do vocals and acoustic guitar because i like that pressure i like being on the clock i like having an engineer and a producer on the other side of the glass so i don't have to think about the technical aspects of it and we kind of do it both ways. A lot of stuff is done at home on our own leisure, on our own time. And you can work in your comfort zone. And that's great. You send your files in to our producer, our, my co-producer and, and uh, engineer, Mike Dresch, who mixes it all together. But, um, you know, home recording isn't anything new. That Boston album from, gosh, 50 years ago, in 76, I guess, was released. That first Boston album was the real advent of home recording recorded in Tom Schultz's basement on a bunch of uh, multi-track tape recorders. And that album still sounds great to this day. So it really it's all about the results. Uh, but there is something to be said for walking down the stairs at electric lady, knowing that Hendrix built this place and you're following in the footsteps of the giants, you know, so there's no substitute for that. Yeah. You've really got to experience the best of both worlds. I think, um, speaking of worlds and maybe otherworldly things, you and I do both uh, enjoy the unexplained and supernatural stories. And I was reading your book and it, you know, you have one paragraph on uh, playing with the Ouija board with Tim Morris and your roommate. I'm like, one paragraph? Come on, Ron. <laughs> you got to give us more than that. Well, that was a crazy thing. That Ouija board <laughs> You know, that, I don't know, I still to this day, I know I wasn't moving it and he wasn't moving it and it was talking to us. It was really, really, really freaky. But, you know, I've had some paranormal, I guess you could call it experiences in my life. I think most everyone has, especially if you're open to that and perceptive to it. But one that really comes to mind that's musically related, that is undeniable, that the proof it was on tape. Uh, was when Ron Kielband was recording our single Homesick. This is uh, 2017. It's a cover of the the old Homesick, uh, Atlanta Rhythm Section song. And it was our first single in 2017 after we became Ron Kielband. And it became part of our South by South Dakota Southern Rock tribute record, uh, which is an album that I'm really proud of, but that's another story. But I'm in the studio cutting the vocal for this track, uh, doing the lead vocal, for homesick and you know with ronnie van zant from skinnerd and you know uh, molly hatchet i mean that whistle that i can't even whistle i cannot whistle <laughs> this is me blowing on the microphone trying to whistle i cannot whistle all right and i'm doing the that's a southern rock trademark though kind of you know ronnie van zant's whistle yeah i'm in the, the studio and I, I always listen back to the track soloed by itself without the instruments so i can give my approval I don't want to hear it with the instruments. I want to hear my vocal alone by itself so I can evaluate my performance. And right in the middle, I think it's right around the second chorus, going into the solo section, there's this huge whistle. And it's not me. And I'm in this room by myself. There's no... It, it, you can hear it plain as day. And I, I told the engineer, play that back again. We listen to it again. And they're bigger than life. There's a whistle on that lead vocal track. I took it at the time to mean that these Southern rock heroes of, of long gone days are, are maybe giving me a nod of approval or they're listening and they're digging what I'm doing. Or you know, at least that was my interpretation of it, but man, that whistle is on the, the lead vocal track louder than, I mean, it's very plain and very easy to hear. 
So uh, that uh, still sends a chill up my spine every time I hear it. <laughs> that is pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, not all ghosts are bad. Some of them are helpful. Do you have a favorite rock and roll conspiracy theory or mystery that unsolved that you delved into? Well, I love those types of stories. And you are one of the authorities on this topic. So I'm preaching to the choir here, Stacey, with all of your, working on uh, it. Yeah. Uh, your, your fantastic books on that subject. But uh, R. Gary Patterson, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, the rock and roll historian who was an expert on these conspiracy theories. And my favorite, I think it's got to be Paul is dead. I mean, the the, the Paul McCartney conspiracy of, that he died in a car crash and they carried on with an imposter or impersonator. There really is a lot of compelling evidence. I'm not saying I believe it, but <laughs> it's fun, a great, though, right? I mean, they're it's fun. a great story. <laughs> yeah, it really is a lot of fun. And the 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 clues, just the search for the clues, whether you find the treasure or not, nobody's ever going to really know, I guess. I don't know. But and even going back further to uh, Jim Morrison's faking his death, you know, like I said, you're the authority on this topic. But I believe that back then it was possible to fake your death. And I believe that Morrison was the kind of guy who would maybe do that. And uh, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, nobody ever saw the body. That, well, yeah, there was no autopsy because he died in Paris, France, and he was not a citizen and there was no autopsy. I don't even know if there was a death certificate and he was buried very quickly in the uh, Père Lachaise Cemetery, which is um, an amazing cemetery. I don't know if you've been there, but no, um, I haven't. yeah, it's great. Very wow. old cemetery. So it wasn't usual for any non-citizens to be buried there so it's kind of unusual that he was so yeah i will yeah. be exploring that story uh my next book that i'm writing with some co-authors is fiction and it's called 28 and it's what if the 27 club would have lived so oh, i'm gonna start brilliant. working on my jim morrison story pretty soon i can't wait to read that so uh yeah i love those stories and um i'm looking forward to digging deeper into your literary catalog i appreciate the books that you sent me and uh all your i'm, I'm a fan too yeah, since you came on my radio show a couple of weeks ago uh, i've gotten to know you better through our conversations and through your work so I'm, I'm a fan as well and i can't wait to devour your catalog on the next long airplane flight oh thank you yeah there's a lot to listen to with the audiobooks and the paperbacks and but i know you're very busy so i don't expect you to get to them all anytime soon and you know as i mentioned at the top of the show you have worn many many hats and you fronted several rock bands we haven't even touched on all of those here um you are Ronnie Dunn for a Brooks and Dunn tribute show. And then you took that a step further by producing a Las Vegas impersonation show. You wrote the book, you created Keel Fest. Um, you're always promoting new bands and inspiring musicians. So first of all, when do you sleep? <laughs> and second, well, is there I've, anything else you have coming up? Well, I, I, I sleep when I can. You know, I, I, I do love what I do. And it's all about entertaining people. I mean, I do wear a lot of hats and I have a lot of different aspects of my career, but they all converge on the subject of entertainment. I want to make people smile, laugh, think, feel. It's all about entertainment. The music comes first with me always. And there, there are a lot of... Uh, great things on the horizon. You know, I believe in keeping the pedal down. I feel a, a sense of responsibility for all the fans who have believed in me and supported me all these years. I want to deliver the goods for them. 
whether it's on stage or on the radio or in these other bands that I'm working with. And, and our record company, RFK Media, has, as I mentioned, has signed Crashing Wayward and the Fifth. Our big project we're promoting now is called Live the Rock. It's a compilation CD with 15 songs we love by 15 artists we believe in. Uh, it's got Ron Keel Band and my RFK All-Stars, as well as uh, some big names, Pamela Moore, who was the voice of Sister Mary on Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime, comedian Don Jameson, as we branch into comedy, our uh, audio books coming soon and all that. But right now, Live the Rock, that CD is, uh, to me, it's 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 an important statement about my company and where we are and what we what we believe in. My career was started in a big way by a couple of albums in the early 80s, Metal Massacre, released by Metal Blade Records, that uh, was the first album that included Rat, Metallica, Steeler, my band, and many others. And that record really started all of our careers and built an empire for Metal Blade Records. And I think that Live the Rock has the same kind of potential for the artists that are on it. And uh, so we're very, very happy about that. You can get that CD at LiveTheRock.com, which is also RFKMedia.com. And of course, uh, my new album, Keel World, which is uh, another ambitious undertaking, which is all new music from all of my bands. Oh, and what? nothing. This is this is <laughs> not uh, this is not uh, reissue. No, no rehashed recordings. No re-recordings. Nothing from the archives or the vaults. It's all new music from Keel. Steeler, Ron Keel Band, Fair Game, Iron Horse, The Rattlers, my country music, Ronnie Lee Keel, the metal cowboy music. And uh, I feel that that's uh, it's like Keel Fest on record. And I'm, I'm really excited to get that done. It's, it's a very ambitious undertaking. Mm -hmm. It's like being in seven bands at the same time and trying to make sure which song fits which project uh, is one of the biggest challenges. But I'm looking forward to getting that out. Hopefully, it could happen this year, maybe Black Friday. Uh, if not, then early next year. Uh, Keel World, the new album from Ron Keel. Wow. So are you writing these songs with the other artists or are you just your own material? And Well, some of the songs are co-writes. Uh, the new Keel song, which we performed at Keel Fest, it's called... What's the name of the new Keel song? Come on. Uh, <laughs> Moving Target. That's it. Moving Target. Uh, that was written by Mark Ferrari and I, he wrote the music, I wrote the words. So I'm, I'm all up for co-writing with my partners. And, uh, but most of the record I think, uh, has to come from, from the source, which is, uh, your fearless front man, the metal cowboy, Ron Keel. But uh, some of the songs are co-writes with some of the members of Ron Keel band. And, uh, of course my, it wouldn't be Keel without having some riffs from Mark Ferrari and Brian J. No, no, it wouldn't. Well, I'm definitely on board for listening to that. And uh, maybe we can talk again when it comes out. But um, so in the meantime, you mentioned a couple of websites, but um, where's the best place for people to find you on the airwaves and online? Ronkeel.com. I'm a firm believer in that one-stop shop. I mean, MySpace, AOL, Instant Messenger, whatever, that's going to come and go. <laughs> Facebook may or may not survive, right. but ronkeel.com has been there for 22 years. It's going to be there a lot longer. Um, and you can find links to everything, the radio show, the social media, RFK Media, KRFK Radio, which is my radio station now. We're very proud to celebrate over 25,000 listeners on our station. And everything that I do, everything that I am can be found at ronkeel.com. We have a Patreon page, which you can also find there. It's patreon.com slash Ron Keel, which is my true inner circle. It's my 
hardcore Keelaholics, the online fan club that gets everything. Uh, they get the dirt. They get the real me. They get the me that wakes up in the morning with an acoustic guitar singing a song for them. Wow. Uh, <laughs> the outtakes, unreleased music, videos, uh, everything that I can possibly give them for shelling out. You know, it's $6.99 a month for all access, but you That's get your money. That's very little for all that. I, I agree. Um, and I, I try and make it worth their while because these fans have, are the ones that have kept me going all these years. We started this uh, when my wife was diagnosed with cancer five years ago or six years ago now. And uh, she's cancer free and, and she's very healthy now. But uh, when she was going through cancer, I had to pull the plug on all my traveling. No more tours, no more shows. I had to be with her for uh, all of the chemotherapy and radiation and 12 surgeries. And, and uh, so I had to find a way to keep doing what I love to do, working from home. And this is years before the pandemic. We had a cabinet full of masks. We were sanitizing and sterilizing everything because of her immune deficiency right. due to the chemo and all that. And so I built that that uh, page at patreon.com slash Ron Keel as a way to work from home. And I just front loaded it with all the cool stuff. You want to see the first Keel show ever? There you go. There's music videos that have never been released to YouTube or anywhere else that you'll find on the Patreon page. And that was what got me through the pandemic. Even uh, in 2020, I just, okay, we're going to stay home for a while. Let's put the pedal down and go online and, and interact with our fans in, in, in that fashion, in that platform. So I'm very proud of what we've accomplished there and certainly want to thank all of the Keelaholics that have been there, some now for over four years, and uh, the loyal fans that have really given me the inspiration and that that's why I work so hard. I mean, it's not rocket science. I do it because I, I don't want to let them down. Well, for anyone that wants to, they want to read, they want to listen, they want to watch Ron Keel's got it for you <laughs> in any, any medium at all. So, well, thank you so much for being on this show. And it was really a pleasure to talk to you and get to know you a little bit better. And I'm sure we'll be talking again. I hope so, Stacey. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm enjoying your work. Uh, keep it up. In honor of our guest, Ron Keel, who loves a good unsolved mystery as much as I do, I'm going to share an excerpt from Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories, Volume 1, and this is from the chapter Magical Mystery Tour. It's from the audiobook, which is read by Andy Garrison. Johnny Thunders, born John Anthony Ginsale on July 15, 1952, of the New York Dolls, took his stage name from a 1968 song by the Kinks and is lauded as one of the greatest punk guitarists of all time. He died on April 23, 1991, at the St. Peter House in New Orleans. Although his demise was chalked up to drug use, toxicology reports later determined the drugs in his system were not at a fatal level. He was also suffering from advanced leukemia at the time, but it was not, apparently, the reason the married father of four died. His friend and fellow punk musician Didi Ramone wrote in his autobiography that rhythm guitar player Stevie Klassen called him the day after Johnny's death and said, Johnny had gotten mixed up with some bastards who ripped him off for his supply. They'd given him LSD and then murdered him. He'd gotten a pretty large supply of methadone in England so he could travel and stay away from those creeps, the drug dealers, thunders imitators, and losers like that. Singer-songwriter Willie DeVille, who was a contemporary of the Ramones, Patti Smith, Television, Blondie, and Talking Heads when they all played exclusively at the New York Rock Club CBGB, was checked into the hotel room beside the one Johnny Thunders died in. 
As such, he got calls from Rolling Stone, The Village Voice, and even Thunder's family, asking questions. His florid, deceptive answers only added to the mystery surrounding the born-to-lose music man's demise. Willie later admitted, I thought I might as well make it look real good, you know, out of respect, so I just told everybody that when Johnny died, he was laying down on the floor with his guitar in his hands. I made that up. The truth is, by the time the body was found curled underneath the coffee table, rigor mortis had set in. Eyewitnesses claimed that Johnny was bent like a pretzel and the room had been ransacked. His manager, Mick Webster, told Melody Maker in a 1994 interview that he and Thunder's family begged the authorities to investigate his death further. We keep asking the New Orleans police to reinvestigate, but they haven't been particularly friendly. They seemed to think that this was just another junkie who had wandered into town and died. They simply weren't interested. And that was that. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time... <laughs>